understand what you mean to all of you. I came here tonight to tell you a few words about the Shambhala meditations, more like to encourage you to give a bit of additional inspiration. Of course, I will not be able to make a full presentation about what Shambhala is, and uh, so that we can make apparent the importance of the Shambhala meditation. That's why I advise that those of you who are more new and if this season the Shambhala videos, satsangs have not been played, have not been distributed, then uh, make it such a way that you can attend it. I don't know if they are uploaded on the internet or not, but uh, at some time or another, make sure that you listen to the lecture. There is a lecture in two parts. One is like two hours and a half and the other one is like two hours. So it's almost five hours of lecturing all in all about Shambhala. And if you really, really uh, get passionate about this subject, then of course do your homework. There exist some three, four books, very informative books, which are reasonably good and have been written on this theme, on this subject. I have asked Dharmananda and the people who do the meditation here every Wednesday to actually inspire people by reading a couple of pages every evening from one of these books, paragraphs which tell us something about Shambhala and which inspire us. Uh, the Shambhala meditation needs a little bit more uh, inspiration, it needs what in Kashmiri Shaivism we call Havana, a sort of enthusiasm, internal momentum, because the contact with Shambhala, uh, while very important from a spiritual standpoint, is somehow an optional thing in the spiritual life. And uh, it is not the duty of Shambhala to answer like a cosmic force, like a cosmic power to people's approach. Of course they do, they do more than answer. I'll clarify that in a very short time. But what I'm trying to say, meditating with Shambhala, as comparing it with meditating with the cosmic power, or comparing it with other subject of meditation is very different. Uh, it has therefore a mysterious aspect to it, like you have to be able to get into that and you have to put your heart into it, you have to put enthusiasm into it. It also has something which makes it much more easy, much more approachable. I would like, before I go into these technicalities of how to meditate or how to connect with Shambhala, I would like to, first of all, say a logical thing. I would like at this point to use something which is equivalent to a Socratic reasoning. Socrates, the great Greek philosopher, he said that first of all the human being has to start from reason. And where reason ends, that's where the mysterious starts. Reason cannot define everything, but it first has to fit with reason. If I am getting some crazy idea and I'm saying, oh, it comes from my right brain hemisphere because I'm an artist and I'm very intuitive and I'm very creative, but that something doesn't fit with anything and if it contradicts everything which is rationally known, then I can also think that my right brain hemisphere just produced some crap that it is actually some madness. It's the result of an unhealthy mind, like the right brain hemisphere, the intuitive part, the creative part, is not holy by itself. That is why you have people who believe that the little green men from Mars are hiding behind the little bulb comet, and they are coming when the comet is at its perihelion, and if you cut off your testicles and commit suicide at the right moment, they are going to take your soul and save it. That comes from the right brain hemisphere. But it's a right brain hemisphere which is sick, which is not harmonious. So the fact that ideas pop up in people's minds they don't make them automatically true. Those ideas, they have to fit with the archetypes. They have to fit with the nature. As above, so below. We have seven chakras. We have seven days of the week. We have this. There comes somebody and says, there are not seven levels in the universe. There are eleven. Based on what? To what does eleven correspond? 
No, if you tell me that there are 12 or something, we could make some numerological correspondences. But really, 11 doesn't correspond to anything numerologically. So what I'm trying to say is that before we unleash our creativity and our mystical sense, because the mysticism is coming from this irrational thing, Albert Einstein, in his theory of relativity, he started from a science which was in the beginning intuitive and irrational. And because he, didn't even, he couldn't even justify it mathematically at the time when he got the vision of it. But still, in the moment when you get the vision, then you have to kind of superimpose it to everything else which is known and see where it fits, how it dovetails. That's why the principle of the Socratic reasoning is that first you find out as much as you can with a reason, and then when you finish the end of the reason, you close your eyes and then the intuition tells you the rest. So the reason is taking you like 90% of the way, and then the other 10%, the crown of the world, the real the magic part, it continues. That's why Socrates had a dictum which said we cannot dispense of the reason. Like people who try to be magic, mysterious, without reason, they usually become nuts. They usually become mad. It's not, they, they deviate, because as soon as you close your eyes and you go into the mysteries of the mind, almost anything can pop up. Reasonable things and unreasonable things as well. Why am I saying this? Because Shambhala is first of all the result of a reasoning. Like with Shambhala, you are meditating with something which is very close, very concrete, scary, and this can create confusion and it can create doubt as well. Like Shambhala is so concrete, because Shambhala is basically, it means the existence of a hundred thousand enlightened beings who are floating up there and they have a spiritual telescope and they see us here in this room, you know, and it's like, it's a sort of a spiritual big brother and you're asking yourself, you know, is this true, like, how much evidence do we have, how often did this break through through the veil of illusion in this manifestation, what evidence is there? Like, it's too good to be true. It's like people say, some people say it's impossible for Shambhala to exist. If Shambhala would exist, then, you know, maybe we should all hang ourselves, you know, because it's like, it's so mysterious, it's so strange, it's so provocative. But please remember, the idea of Shambhala is just a corollary of spirituality. When we speak, for example, about uh, the metaphysical workshop, we automatically have to mention a thing like Shambhala because Shambhala is a pillar of spirituality. It's a conclusion of spirituality. What does spirituality of all the times tell us? Spirituality of all times tells us that human beings who train and train and practice and practice and develop and develop, they can reach a superior level of consciousness. <coughs> And the higher this level of consciousness is, the more close you are to a state called nirvana or enlightenment or something like that, salvation, perfection, cosmic consciousness, whatever you choose to call it according to different traditions. And the people who reach this higher state of consciousness, they never die. You're going to say bollocks, all of them have died, like all the saints, all the Buddhas and the yeah, they die biologically, but the idea is that when normal people die, they black out and they lose the continuity of their consciousness, and then in the next life when they are reborn, they are reborn without any memory of what they have been in their previous life. And only deep, deep, deep in the subconscious mind there persist some samskaras, which are like traces which show what you may have been in a previous life, but the enlightened beings are supposed to be the one, the saints, the great saints, the mystics that have reached accomplishment. They are the ones who have seen God. And because they have seen God, they have reached a privileged state of consciousness. And in that state of consciousness, the first thing which happens is that they have continuity of consciousness. Either they are here, or they sleep, or they die. They know who they are. They are in, continue, in continuity. And when they die, therefore they go to a privileged place. Every religion speaks about a paradise, a kingdom of heaven of some sort, where really, really 
develop human beings go. And those human beings, they are not asleep, they are not blacking out, they are active, they exist in a parallel world which is like a wonderful lucid dream, and in that lucid dream world, they act. Many religions believe that you can pray to them, like Buddha is gone wherever he's gone, and the Buddhists think that they can pray to Buddha. Not only to Buddha, they can pray to other people who became Buddhas, like they pray to Guru Rinpoche in Tibet, to Padmasambhava, they pray to Tsongkhapa, they pray to Milarepa, they pray Why? Because these people are supposed to be strong in front of God. They have a privileged position and they can intercede for you and for everybody. The same is valid in Christianity or in Judaism. Or people pray to different prophets. People pray to different personalities who are supposed to have had, in, in, had grace from God. No, you pray Saint Francis of Assisi, pray for us. Like, I cannot really pray, but I can pray that Saint Francis of Assisi, if he feels pity for me, he prays, and his prayer is like 25 times stronger than mine, so I pray with two steps. I pray to Francis, and Francis prays to Jesus. And Jesus is one with God, and from there all grace will come. Therefore, in every spirituality, there exists this idea that the people who reach a certain spirituality, they don't disappear. They don't go to the meat grinder. They don't go into oblivion. When they die, they stay, they stand up and they are spiritually there. So, if that is true, I, I can agree that some of you are coming from an atheistic, rationalistic, agnostic, or simply skeptical environment, and you have seen a lot of bullshit in the organized religion, and you are kind of disgusted with religion and with these things, and you say, you don't know what to believe, you know, like, when Swami speaks about it, when Swami Shivananda speaks about it, when a rationalistic yogi like Yogananda or Vivekananda speaks about it, then you feel that these people make sense in a certain way. When you listen to some religious preachers talk about it, it's like you get goosebumps and you feel that this is so dogmatic and blind and fanatic. So it's normal, I can accept this, and I, of course I do, that people are coming from the outside world, and the outside world is a competitive capitalistic environment where the ego is the biggest good that people think that they have, and it's a culture of egoism and materialism and skepticism and cynicism and a lot of other similar features, and because of that you come here, you find the yoga school, is like some of us in the yoga school look for some of the beginners like a bit nuts, you know, it's like, yeah, I went to Agama, and all of them, half of them at least, were flying really high into some spiritual things. But I, as a beginner, I don't know what's the heads and what's the tails of all of this. And I am keeping a sort of a healthy skepticism within to this. These people from yoga say that you can make experiments and slowly, slowly you will see and that you are going to feel it across fingers. Like, I'm looking forward that, that I will be one of those persons and that I will also be convinced of this. That's why, again, we can also make abstraction of the fact that for some people, spirituality in general is a hypothesis. You know, it's like, okay, no, that's what yoga is. Fortunately, yoga is not invented by Swami Vivekananda. Yoga is thousands of years old, so Swami Vivekananda is only repeating a truth which has been said, which he has inherited from his teachers and from the predecessors in yoga. But in the moment when you are ready to accept spirituality, like if for a second you go and say, no, okay, it may be so, it may be that some people are reaching a continuity of consciousness, a state of awakening. If you are ready for a second to admit that, then of course the question which comes next is, if they did not reincarnate, like the Dalai Lamas or the Karmapas, those of them, if in this cosmic cycle, if in the last 6,000 years, or in the, in the last 26,000 years, we got 150,000 people reaching Samadhi, that's actually not a number out of the top of my head, 
That's a number which is vehiculated in mystical circles, and it is mentioned in the Apocalypse of John in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, where John, having a vision of the end of time and the second coming of Christ, he says at the second coming of Christ, there will be 12 times 12,000 or something like this, there will be 144,000 people that have reached full perfection, salvation. The number is given as such in the book of Revelation. So John evaluates that at the end of the cycle there are about 144,000 enlightened beings. So let's keep it like a landmark. It's a useful number. It gives us a bit of a sense of proportion. Okay, in this cosmic cycle, there would have been 150,000 about Buddhas, men and women who reached Samadhi. Out of them, probably now on the face of the earth, let's say a hundred of them are incarnated. Where are the other 149,000 of them, or 900, you know? Where are they when they are not incarnated? Because they did not dissolve, they did not disappear, they are there, they can hear us right now, they have continuity of consciousness, they are lucid, they can react to what I'm saying right now, and therefore they, they are responsive and they are somewhere. So the question is, if spirituality is true, maybe spirituality is not true, and some people are selling illusions, and they are telling you, you could reach nirvana, and it's like it's all bullshit, you know? It's all just selling dreams. There is no nirvana, there is no immortality, you just die, you never pre-existed, you never post-existed. That's what a materialistic, skeptical person would believe. I can live with the fact that some of you are still questioning that. And that is, that's your evolution, that's your insight, that's your practice. Keep practicing and find out, resolve your doubts. But if you accept that what Buddhism, Hinduism, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Sikhism, Taoism, Zoroastrianism, you name it, you know, Shintoism, if all those are right and there exists a privileged state of consciousness which 150,000 people have reached in the last 25,000 years on the face of this earth, question is, where are all those dudes? Where are? Where is Saint Catherine the Great? Where is... Uh, I don't know, the Prophet Muhammad. Where are all these people? Because they are supposed to be in a privileged place, in a paradise or something. Question, are all of them right? Or in the moment when they go up there, some of them discover that they were on a totally wrong track. Like the Christians believe that Jesus was Messiah. And actually maybe Jesus was not Messiah. So they worshipped some false prophet, which was a schizophrenic, deluded person. And when they die praying to Jesus, they discover the old Jewish prophets like Elijah and the rest of them, looking at them and shaking their heads and saying, poor idiots, you've been praying to some dog or something, you know. You've been praying to some shadow and therefore you didn't make it to anywhere, you know. You've just been deluded. Like, what's in the afterlife? Are the Buddhists right? Are the Hindus right? Are the Jews right? The Muslims right? The Christians right? Like, can all of them be right to a certain extent? Is there just one religion on the face of this planet which is right and all the other nine of them or how many they are, they are all of them bullshit and people are praying to Mickey Mouse or something and they will never get anywhere. Are two of them right? Are three out of ten right? Are all of them right? Is none of them right? Like, this is the big question. Here is where we use the reason. We think like Socrates, you know? It's like, can God be uneven? Like, you know, what did they do in the time of Milarepa in Tibet? Nobody had heard about Jesus. So if Jesus is the only Savior which exists on the face of this earth, then the Tibetans have been persecuted by a very cruel God. The Tibetans in the 12th century, they had never heard about Jesus, because there has been not a single preacher of Christianity passing through Tibet.
And they were growing up, and they were being told about Buddha, they were being told about Padma Sambhava. There was this great guy called Vilarepa walking on water or whatever he was doing, and naturally the Tibetans simply said, that's divine, that's the, you know. But they were not told about Jesus. And if when they die, they go to the pearly gates, and Peter clanks his keys and he says, stupid idiots from Tibet, you never prayed to Jesus and therefore you go into the outer darkness. They, these people could petition God and simply they could say, God, you've been an idiot and a monster, you know, because you didn't even give us the chance. At least if we had a Christian church in Tibet, we could have chosen between Milarepa and, but there hasn't been for centuries. So therefore, as a great theologian said, God cannot be a father which is taking sides. Like God simply forgot about the Tibetans and left them for six centuries in darkness. And oops, if you are born in Tibet in the 12th century, you didn't even have the chance to believe in Jesus Christ because it's obvious for anybody who is rational that an omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent cosmic consciousness cannot do that. And therefore it's obvious from a Socratic reasoning standpoint that if spirituality is not 100% bullshit, if spirituality exists, then automatically it has to be universal. It appears that this cosmic consciousness must have given a chance of some sort to everybody who lived on this planet. Like even the aboriginals from Australia who never saw Farangs until the 15th century or the 16th century, they must have had a way to relate, because otherwise it was like they were punished souls. They were sent to incarnate, but the, their chance to find enlightenment was zero. Therefore, they, like how could God be so unfair to different creatures if they are all human beings? And that's why we need to admit that if spirituality is right, <clears throat> In the moment when people cross the threshold of death, there are some things which won't matter. Like, if indeed there is salvation, and Buddhists and Hindus and uh, Christians and others spoke about it, then this salvation must be universal, must be available to every soul in one way or another. And the conclusion of this is this. There are 150,000 enlightened beings who have reached the threshold in this last 25,000 years. These 150,000 people, they belong to the same God, because if they don't belong to God, they belong to the devil, and they are not in Shambhala, they are in hell. And therefore we are talking about those who really made it. And those 150,000, therefore they must be somewhere. They must be accessed. Swami Shivananda sent a telepathic message after his death, to two women who are doing a very powerful sadhana, and he told them, after my death, after I finished my bardo, and I arranged my things, then I found myself sent in a place of great responsibility in the invisible world, and I am placed in such a position that if anybody addresses me a request or a prayer or a thought, I can, I can answer to them, I can support. So Swami Shivananda sent the message, he said, I'm in a place where you can pray to me, you can talk to me, you can ask me telepathically, energetically things, because I'm in a place from where I can answer. That place is Shambhala. This Shambhala, it can be like 150,000 hermits living in 150,000 kudis, in 150,000 huts and hermitages, in a magical land, and we call that magical land Shambhala. Like their lifestyle in the dream world, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter if they walk in a city, or if it's a jungle, or if it's a mountain, or if it's uh, some eternal other lands. Tradition tells us many things about Shambhala, but before you listen to those things, and before you listen to all the historical evidence which has been accumulated about Shambhala, please remember first of all this, there exists a chance that spirituality is bullshit and that Shambhala is a manufactured myth. And if spirituality is true, then Shambhala is 100% true. 
It cannot be true because all the saints and the mystics that have reached close to God, they must be somewhere. And it is very difficult to presume that exactly as in uh, Jerusalem, the traditional Jews are fighting with the Muslims and with the Christians and whatever, and they live in ghettos. It would be funny to presume that in the afterlife, in the kingdom of heaven, they are segregated on ghettos and the ex-Buddhists are throwing stones at the ex-Muslims and the ex-Jews are throwing stones at the ex-Christians and like that cannot be as well. And therefore we know from the very beginning if this planet has produced 150,000 enlightened beings and probably a million of almost enlightened beings like bodhisattvas as they are called in the Mahayana Buddhists almost Buddhas. A Bodhisattva is an 80% Buddha, like people who are really close and who have acquired great merit, uh, spiritual merit, great spiritual power already, then Shambhala is a must. Shambhala exists. Shambhala is populated by all these great saints. Remember that these great saints were sometimes just pure lambs of God, little children of God, endowed with just great spiritual insight, Allah Ramana Maharishi, and who could not hypnotize, who could not heal with their hands, who could not levitate or perform astral projection, like they are not endowed with cities, but still enlightened. And some of these other people, among those 150,000, they were like Saint Mark of Ethiopia who erroneously moved the mountain from his place just because he said some strong words. They were like Milarepa who could materialize and dematerialize some of them and he said I can move from the top of the heaven to the bottom of hell, appear, be anything, share any existential condition, I can do anything I want in this universe. So some of them may be simple children of God and some of them may be extremely potent saints, enlightened beings. That's why the idea is somewhere in the invisible world there exists a cartel of enlightened beings. That's what we are being told. Those enlightened beings, they don't fight with each other based on the previous religion which they had on earth and they all serve the same cosmic consciousness because what the cosmic consciousness wants is for the human beings to evolve. There must be a school, there must be an organism which allows to the impatient people that have aspiration and longing in their heart to accelerate their spiritual evolution. If spiritual evolution would have a constant speed, we could simply program you like analyzing your telomeric ending of the DNA. We could say, you've got three lives, you've got eleven lives, you will reach it in this very lifetime. No, like it would be predictable when you make up the sum and when you graduate and when you become a Buddha. But because there is consciousness and free will and because people are endowed with aspiration and bhakti and longing and because as an answer to that there is what we call grace, Therefore, we don't know what people are reaching. And that's why there are schools of spirituality. Either they are Sufi spirituality or in the Hindu ashrams or Christian monasteries or whatever they are, where people can go for intensive practice. And with intensive practice, they can speed up their evolution. This is the meaning of Shambhala. All the spiritual masters live for that. That there should be a level of morality, of ethics, that there should be peace, so that human beings, instead of killing each other and torturing each other, and raping each other and doing whatever they do to each other, that human beings can spend their time and whatever, have a family, have a job, have a career, have children and whatever, and knock their heads and knock their heads and find out what life is all about. No, try to spend time, to have time, so you can think and think and think and eventually you can start having ideas like Buddha when he saw sick people, when he saw dead people, when he saw old people, something clicked in his brain and he said, is this what life is? This is why it's like it sounds very dreary, you know, why is there not something else to the human life? 
than illness and pain and old age and death and you know, that's all we are born just because we have to die. No, this is the meaning of life. And thus, Spirit Shambhala is concerned specially with this. All these 150,000 enlightened beings, and maybe another million semi-enlightened beings, they look at you, among others, with compassion. And they say there in Kopangan, there are a bunch of people, you know, some of them more committed, some of them less committed, some of them dead serious, you know, and they want to give it a shot. They want to give it a try, you know, they simply think, we could reach Nirvana in this lifetime. And if they want so, we Shambhala, we are very sympathetic. Because we have been there, we also have been crazy like them, like this. And when we were young in the past life, or in 15 lifetimes ago, there was a time when we were just like them. And we were rookies, we were little children, we were in the kindergarten, in the spiritual kindergarten, and we were longing for oneness, we were longing for awakening. And therefore, let's help these people. So Shambhala is, I, that's what I want you to understand, because here we read from documents, there is a lot of evidence, there is a lot of disturbing stuff, which you have to look at with a very open eye, but this is the main idea for you to remember. If spirituality is true, then Shambhala is 100% inevitable and true. Because those 150,000 great souls, they have to be somewhere. And they are compassionate, loving, helping. They are willing to support out of sympathy and out of divine grace. Thus, with having this idea in mind, things become a little bit black and white. If I'm a person who still has serious doubts about spirituality, then Shambhala is a question mark. If I'm a person that has accepted that spirituality exists, then Shambhala is just a logical consequence of that. What comes from this logical consequence is that clairvoyants, seers, enlightened beings and others, here and there they gave us glimpses. They gave us little drops of information about Shambhala. And the metaphysicians, especially in the 20th century, where the science and the language and everything became universal, planetary, the great metaphysicians, they tried to pick up all this information. It started with bits and pieces brought by the Theosophical Society, who were the first ones who were trying to see a universal religion for all the planet. It started coming with uh, other and other visionaries who are looking at this. It started coming with secret information coming from the Tibetan culture and from India, where people still knew about this Shambhala thing, because it was geographically very close to them. It started coming with a lot of revelations. It became really powerful when René Guénon, a French metaphysician, published his the first smashing book about the subject, which is called The Lord of the World. Actually, it's called The Rallyman, the King of the World, but the British uh, probably wanted that their king should be the only king around, and then this guy from Shambhala should be just the Lord of the World. So it's translated as the Lord, or maybe simply because it sounds better in English. I'm not a native English speaker, so uh, it might simply um, be a more simple explanation. And starting with the King of the World, the Lord of the World, then slowly, slowly the veil has been lifted. But of course, because the subject is so formidably esoteric as you got to hear, as soon as information started coming up, this information also started coming up, like Alice Bailey and a few other people from this neo-theosophical thing, which became anthroposophic and others and others. They started publishing lots of nonsense because part of it was interested. It was like, okay, we know about Shambhala and come to our organization and we are going to give you information about it, which was actually not the case, it was a lie. And uh, therefore many people started also lying and publishing nonsense about it. So your task is to do two things. One of them is of course practice. Practice, 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 
practice, practice, and practice again. There's nothing which beats the practice. If you address Shambhala by using the methods which are known, Shambhala will sooner or later open their doors to you. In your dreams, in visions, in revelations, and later perhaps in more and more. Remember that Shambhala is not an easy thing. It may, it may shock you, you know, maybe Shambhala thinks that the Americans are the great Satan, and Iran is religious and is actually godly. No? Probably out of you here, there are about 25 people, probably 23 of you would say, come on, bullshit, you know. If Shambhala thinks that Iran is right and America is wrong, I don't want to go to Shambhala. Be my guest. Don't go, you know, but Shambhala might believe that. That's why Shambhala is not an easy thing, because we are sick children of a sick society, and we have grown up with very false values. And because of this, Shambhala might be, you know, what would Jesus do if you would put Jesus as not constitutional king, where the parliament can fuck him, but as absolute king, like the man with the power in the hand? Do you think Jesus would maybe stop the booze? Do you think that Jesus might prohibit completely drugs and cigarettes? Like, as far as I go, if I would be Jesus and put in that situation, I would say, why do we sell poison which kills people with cancer, like cigarettes? I would prohibit it. No? I would not make myself very popular. But hey, Jesus didn't make himself very popular, right? Precisely because he was throwing all the shit possible at people, showing them the shit from their lives and from their minds. And that's why I'm saying Shambhala is like Jesus. So if you'd bring somebody from Shambhala to be king, they would fuck all your liberties. All these liberties that we take for granted, Shambhala doesn't really believe in them. They believe in the freedom of consciousness, you know. Maybe the Spanish Inquisition was a bit too much even for Shambhala, you know. It's like, okay, we believe in God, we want people to be religious, but maybe, you know, we still can give them some freedom to manifest, you know, that if they want to be atheistic, let them be atheistic and find out what the consequences of that are. So indeed, what I'm trying to say here is, don't think that Shambhala will immediately wag their tail happily just because you concede to meditate with Shambhala. Shambhala may consider you, up till a point, damaged goods. And you know, when you knock at their door, Shambhala says, okay, here is another kid of Kali Yuga knocking at our door. We'll have to polish this one for 20 years before they wake up from there madness, you know, because they come here like this and they think Shambhala is supposed to be politically correct or, you know, friendly to the United Nations. Maybe Shambhala considers the United Nations a satanic organization. What will you do then? Because if Shambhala tells me that the United Nations is satanic, I'm saying fine. I'm fine with that. If that's what you guys think, I'm 100% with you. No, like, I'm converted. I'm already, you know, they don't need to preach to me because they preach to the choir. No, I'm there. But, so that's why I say, meditating on Shambhala is a revolution for the human being because it challenges a lot of our things. And Shambhala is not just some abstract God somewhere that I got some inspiration and I felt some grace and there were some goosebumps along my spine and so on. You are talking about telepathic contact with some people that exist, with some people that do things, with some people who are in charge of this world in a very discreet way, and with some people who have power to dematerialize the moon from the sky if they choose so. You know, it's like people who can do pretty much anything that a mind can conceive, those people can do in actual fact. Not Ramana Maharishi, but Milarepa, probably yes. So that's why I'm telling you all these things, so you can understand that meditating with Shambhala has these two sides. One, practice, practice, practice. 
How do you practice? Here we show you the Yantra of Shambhala, which was revealed uh, through Tibetan sources uh, tens of years ago, before the fall of Tibet. We are giving you information about the Shambhala resonates on Ajna Chakra, so at least you know where to go to find Shambhala. We are telling you that even the famous Hindu mantra Aum was given as the most simple way of connecting with Shambhala for the non-initiates, like if in your mind you are chanting Aum, 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 and you do Trataka on this yantra on something, that connects you with Shambhala. We read for you texts about Shambhala which are selected, because there are many bullshit stories written about Shambhala, but at least here in Agama we have kind of selected for you those which make perfect sense and which come from reliable sources, not like there is this guy, Nicholas Roerich. Nicholas Roerich, 50% of what he writes is brilliant, and 50% of what he writes is the madness of a hyper-excited painter. He's just a freaky artist, and some of what he says is the real thing, and some of it is just wishful thinking coming from a hyperthyroidic painter or something like this. So what I'm trying to say is you have information about it, you have methods. Here in Agama we have stronger methods, but unfortunately the Shambhala meditation addresses your enthusiasm, and we cannot give you those methods. We have methods of connecting with the king of the world from Shambhala. The Kala Chakra methodology from Tibet gives mantras, gives visualizations, gives all sorts of additional things which some of our advanced pupils, like those who organize, those who are sitting here and they are doing this meditation with you, they know those methods. That's why I entrusted them with that. That's why they are empowered by me to do this meditation because they can sit in front of you and convey in full force, they can convey this resonance to you. And therefore, the first thing is this. If you want to see if there is Shambhala, the number one thing is practice. Practice until Shambhala starts manifesting in your life. Be prepared for surprises, because we don't live in a perfect world. And as Stanislaw Jerzy Lech, uh, or Lech, Lech uh, uh, Polish writer, I'll never, I never forget that one. He wrote many, many, many good philosophical aphorisms, but this one is probably the most brilliant. Jerry Stanislav Lech, he simply said, in hell, the devil is the good guy. Like, when you go to hell, you cannot start criticizing Satan, because he happens to be the boss in hell. So in hell, the good guy is the devil, and if you praise Jesus or Saint Francis, then they come and fry you a little bit more out of grudge. So the values in hell are reversed. The good is presented as bad and the bad is presented as good. We come from a sort of a hell. I don't say it. It's Jesus who 2,000 years ago, when he spoke about what was happening to him, when he spoke about the Roman Empire, when he spoke about the perverted Jewish priests and aristocracy, he said, Satan is the prince of this world. Like this world is temporarily on loan to the devil, even 2,000 years ago. Therefore, basically, if we are in a bit of a hell, then it's normal that Caligula and Nero become emperors, although they should have been committed in a mental institution, you know? And other and other uh, similar things happen in history. And thus, um, prepare for surprises because the values of Shambhala may be very different from what you have learned from your mom and dad and from your school. And there you are going to have your own conflict. If you are ready to become a knight of God and put your armor on and become a crusader for something which 99% of the people in the society think is not, and uh, you become a sort of a Don Quixote, a dreamer which is like anachronic, is out of his time, then you might do that. If not, there are people who try a little bit this Shambhala thing and then they chicken out. They simply run away and they say, nah, I don't know. It's like, you know, I want to be friends with other people. I want Facebook and Twitter and this and all this Shambhala thing. So you will see where you stand with it. The second thing which you need to do and which we give you the opening in this meditation, but you could do much more, is remember, not much has been written about Shambhala and definitely not much really, really good has been written about Shambhala. And therefore, you could actually study. 
the, our teachers and the people in Agama who are at the advanced levels, they generally know. We can give you a, when we can write it on the board, you know, the titles of the five best books ever written about Shambhal. And then the first, things for, the first thing for you to do is study a little bit. Because when you are going to see the... I, I, I'm thinking about making a brochure and always I'm staggering in front of how much there should be in that brochure because the, the evidence which points at Shambhala is staggering. It's amazing. Like, it's exactly like the elephant in the room that everybody sees and nobody talks about. It's exactly like Edgar Allan Poe's novel with a letter that was hidden in plain sight on the table. And nobody thought that the secret thing would be left right on the table, like this. Therefore, nobody bothered to verify. No? Like, there is plenty of evidence about Shambhala and the activities of Shambhala. From too many parts of the world, like when you put together things from the Native Americans and from the Siberian shamans and from the Tibetan Buddhists and from others and Christian medieval mysticism and all of them point at the same thing, then you are starting asking yourself, what the heck? You know, it's like, this is more than just coincidence. So when uh, a thing for you, that you, 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 you take heart, that you believe that you focus more is to study. That's why I asked Dharmananda and the others to read for you a little bit from these good things, just to show, just to increase your appetite and to show to you that as far as I'm, I'm concerned, no, I have the background of being an earth sign astrologically. I have been a rationalist person as a teenager. I have, I have a scientific education and I'm an engineer in my technical formation. I don't like bullshit. I don't like fuzzy, crazy, new age things and so on, because it's so easy to get excited by all sorts of stupid things and discover 10 years later that they were not true and you are just chasing the shadow and you wasted your time and energy and you invested your heart and soul in something which is nonsense. And that's why I'm saying, I'm trying to show to you the solid things and in this way to make you take heart, to make you gain heart, and to see this Shambhala is not just, a, it sounds very fantastic, it sounds like science fiction, it sounds like too good to be true. There are really many people who say, if we could really know about this thing with Shambhala, I, I think I would climb on the Eiffel Tower in Paris and shout it for everybody to hear, you know, it's like, it's too much, you know, this thing is like too much, and that's why, I'm saying half of your, perhaps 51% of your endeavor is practice. Follow the Agama system until you get to the point where we can teach you the more advanced methods of practice. Not because we want to keep it a secret, but because we have so much to teach in Agama that it has to follow a certain sequence and therefore we can teach you only when you reach to a certain level of proficiency in your yoga practice. So. Follow your practice, do practice, may these meditations which you do here, may they be encouraging for you, may they open your appetite for it. It is possible that information or insight from Shambhala can appear to you before you actually reach high levels of initiation in yoga about Shambhala, like the Kala Chakra methods and so on. I was extremely enthusiastic about Shambhala when I heard about it and for one year or more I raved about it and tried to read as much as I could. I couldn't get my hands on good literature because I was living in a communist country which was behind the iron wall and I couldn't have access to all that literature and still I picked up bits and pieces and I started having manifestations of Shambhala in some meditations, in some dreams in some visions, not, although I'm not a very vision-prone person. No, so I know that it can happen to you if it has happened to me. It, you can get to have reasonable amounts of contact with Shambhala even after one year. If you knock at their door for one year and they notice that you are not just a curious hippie who is just trying to you know, 
challenge God, you know, like, oh, really, if it's true, show me them or something. You know, not this kind of superficial curiosity. But if you are a real spiritual seeker who dwells and dwells, Shambhala may start manifesting. And then you go deeper and deeper. And the purpose of the Kala Chakra system of practice is to make sure that you are in resonance with the King of the World from Shambhala, that after death you will go to Shambhala, even if you are not fully enlightened being, you can go after death in Shambhala and be with Swami Shivananda and Paramahamsa Yogananda and with Saint Teresa of Adila and all the rest of them. And therefore, uh, there is a purpose of this practice and it's very, very beautiful. I, for orientation, I have already made up my mind and my decisions, and I know if everything goes the way I wish, after that I will be in Shambhala, I completely sympathize with them, and if the Divine Consciousness doesn't have any opposition to this, then this is, for me, Shambhala is good enough, is right, it is a good place where to manifest compassion, to manifest loving kindness, to exert to do karma yoga and to be part of the process. And the second part is for you to study because it is inevitable. You are human beings like I am. And the monkey mind is a terrible thing which we all know. Therefore, I don't expect for a second that your monkey mind is not going to give you headaches. Your monkey mind is going from time to time to come up with stupid questions and say, what if Shambhala doesn't exist? What if this? What if I'm on the wrong path? Okay, it's the monkey mind and you can treat it like that's the monkey mind and deal with it. But it's very important, therefore, to read, to know, to instruct, because this will give more confidence and it will reduce this monkey mind more to silence, like it will give you more peace during your spiritual quest. Any one of you who is interested in Shambhala, this is our offer in Agama. We thought about how can we make so that people don't have to wait for six years or seven years before they get the Kala Chakra, Mantra, and Initiation, and all this, and how can we do that people do something. So we created a sort of a, exactly like music meditation can be used by people who cannot use mantras or other visualizations, in the same way, we try to create a sort of easy Shambhala meditation. That easy Shambhala meditation is through the grace of the advanced pupils of Agama, is offered to you every week. If you cannot come to the Ganesha Hall, do it at home. If you want to do it every day, do it at home. I have put together a sequence of music of 30 to 50 minutes, approximately, like we have a short version and a long version. And that music meditation has a good resonance with Shambhala and with the King of the World. Associated with the visualization of the Yantra, like many people don't find it. I remember when first of all I told to people, this is the Yantra of Shambhala, people have said, how do you know, like where did it come from? Like we've never seen it before. And then I told them, it's published in the book of Thomas Andrew called Shambhala, Oasis of Light. And then some of my academic pupils from USA, they went and dug the book because it's a book which is out of print, has been out of print for 30 years. And they came to me and they said, Swami, look, this is the book of Thomas Andrew, there is not this thing. And then I found out that mysteriously in the American versions of the book, although Thomas Andrew is an English language author, it has not been put there. Who put it there? The French. The French people put it there in the French edition, published in the La Fonte, in the Editeur La Fonte, Edition La Fonte or something. They made a translation of the book of Thomas Andrew called Shambhala Oasis de Lumière, and in that book, on the cover, they put this thing. And then on the inner page, somewhere on the second page, it was said, cover, the seal of Shambhala, as illustrated in Tibetan monasteries. Like, even that is, even that, was it? And funnily, in the books, they had put it with the six-pointed star in the middle, because that makes a six-pointed star, they put it with it turned 90 degrees. Like, because if you take this thing and turn it, somebody who doesn't know esotericism won't even realize that it's turned, because it doesn't make any sense for them. But for us, who work with yantras and we know the symbology, the basic archetypes and symbols, 
it was very clearly that some person who was ignorant had put it. So on the cover of the Vedicure Lafont, this is twisted with 90 degrees laterally, simply because it looks pretty much the same you know, when you twist. It's a circle. Whichever way you put it, it sounds right to them. But it was not. So that's why I say even this is a great revelation. Even people who did studies don't know about this, and then people don't know what to do with the yantras. So you've got the yantra, any one of you is fanatic, work three hours per day with this yantra and see what's going to happen. You know, like if you are really, if you really want to give it the whole hand. You have a yantra, we tell you that you can work with the mantra Aum, which is a mantra which is easily given by initiation, and it's the most well-known mantra in Hindu yoga. We are reading paragraphs and things which have resonance with Shambhala. We have put together a music which gives the resonance with Shambhala, pieces of music. So you already have a good meditation. You already have a good system of practice. If Shambhala is one of your passions, if Shambhala is one of your things, then why not meditate with Shambhala? And as you go deeper in the initiation in yoga, we promise that we are going to teach you even more about Shambhala. Our purpose, I mean, we are going to teach you Kashmiri Shaitis, we are going to teach you about the Shiva Consciousness, we are going to teach you many, many other things which are in the main trend of yoga. But still, in yoga, Indian and Tibetan, this thing with Shambhala has been fresh, has been intense, precisely because the subject is very thrilling. One of the utmost fears of spiritual people is that you are a freak, you are bizarre, you are alone, there are not other people in this world who think like you. There is a bit of a soap bubble here in Kopangan where you find like-minded, crazy people and so on. But for the rest, you know, and with Shambhala, you're going to find out that there is a million like you out there who have lived on the face of this earth and passed away, and some of them are coming back from time to time, and therefore you are not alone. Shambhala is a form of spirituality which is a bit like Facebook. It's social spirituality. It's spirituality with a bit of Svadhisthana to it, because if you need company, what better company could you find than the people from Shambhala? If the people from Shambhala are too much for you, then regretfully it means you are not ready to go the full monte. Like Jesus, you know, he says if your right arm prevents you, cut off your right arm, but it's better to reach to the kingdom of heaven without your right arm than not to reach at all. Like there are people in spirituality who are ready to die for it, you know. They are ready to go to the walls for it. They are ready to contradict the whole world. They are ready to stand alone like Don Quixote and be the only dreamer who still has a dream and an idea. This is what spirituality looks like, unfortunately, in Kali Yuga. With Shambhala, you actually discover that besides the 200 freaks physically present around here in the island, on a bigger scale, you are not alone. There are hundreds of thousands and millions like you who have done the path and some of them have reached to the acme of their path, and therefore Shambhala is very beautiful in a certain way due to this human aspect. We meditate with Kali, we meditate with Shiva. How, how does it sound that I'm going to be friends with Kali, when Kali is a form of consciousness that embraces the universe? I'm smaller than an ant, and Kali is bigger than an elephant compared to me, you know? It's like, what friendship can exist between me and the sun? When the sun has been living for 10 billion years in this universe, and it's Surya Deva, you know? It's like, it's a Deva. But you can be friends with Swami Shivananda. You can be friends with Saint Francis of Assisi. You can be friends, friends with Mahananda Mahi, and with Milareva, and with the likes of them. And that's why Shambhala is in a certain way very thrilling, because it's, it's closer in this way. I could speak so much more about Shambhala. I just wanted to come tonight because I never showed up at this meditation during this season. And I wanted to encourage you, to, to make you understand 
That's why we are also recording it, so people in the future can benefit of this. Because I wanted you to do this meditation with heart, with enthusiasm. Don't come to Shambhala meditations if you are tired and if it's a chore for you. It's not a chore for you to think about your spiritual family. Shambhala is your spiritual... If you are a spiritualist, truly, Shambhala is your spiritual family. Shambhala are exactly those people who are good, loving, compassionate, not evil, not selfish, not materialistic, not like everybody is always saying, in every community where you go, there is minimum one asshole, but most probably more than one. No. In every community there is a person who is selfish, who spoils the day, who is egocentric, who is boring, irritating, wicked, has an agenda of, you know, people are more like everybody says, why can't we have a village in Spain somewhere where we can be only good people, like the first act of wickedness is punishable by exile, like get out of our community and never come back, you know. Be banished in the outer darkness as far as we are concerned. Like we would like to be surrounded by people of spirit, not people that become a pain in the neck all the time. No? You're talking about Shambhala. Shambhala is that place. Shambhala is the place where there is the real spiritual brotherhood and the knowledge and the spirituality and all that. That's why Shambhala is amazing in so many ways. And it constitutes an idea for many people. I don't know how others are, but I have been sold to this ideal of Shambhala ever since I heard about it. I said, that's worthy, you know. It's worthy, it's a worthy endeavor to look for immortality and freedom, which is the definition of yoga. It's a worthy endeavor to look for the cosmic consciousness. And it's also a worthy endeavor to look in the manifestation, in the non-manifestation, you've got nirvana. But when you open your eyes and you are in the manifestation, at least you have an, a proper medium of living out these things. Shambhala is that utopia. Shambhala is that utopian place where spirituality is humming and alive. That's why for me it means a lot. And I wish that all of you, or as many as you as possible, will discover your own personal connection with Shambhala and will manage to understand the greatness of this concept. This is all I have to say. All the practical things and other things are at your disposal. I'm sure our library has in physical or in digital format all the five, six major books that have been written of Shambhala and you can study and the more you study and the more your mind contains these things and the more you practice, the closer you are getting to your dream, the closer you are getting to your ideal. Here, what we can do is that every Wednesday we read a page or two or three from something which is authentic about Shambhala and then we say, let us meditate. Now is the time to address Shambhala in spirit. Let's connect with them in spirit. That's what I intend to do now as well. I spoke and spoke. It's later than I thought. I, it's for a good cause, so uh, I hope you didn't get too tired or stretched by me talking more than we're planning to. But we cannot just talk by talking. We have to do something. And therefore, besides this talking, let's do a little meditation with Shambhala. Let's simply be one in spirit. Let's invoke Shambhala. They don't need to do any spectacular thing when invoked. They might. I don't think any one of you needs to be convinced of something. Shambhala might give you some grace and show some strange phenomena happening. Usually that's not. We're not tempting. Shambhala, come on, guys, if you are really so strong and don't show us something because we are skeptical and we're dying here and drying up. Maybe for some that is part of their message. But we are addressing Shambhala like, you know, we are applicants for Utopia. We would like one day to be part of Shambhala, would like to be in that environment. So it's part of our personal evolution, it's part of our personal development that we want 
connect with Shambhala. That's the purpose of this. You can use mantras, if you can use during the music playing, you can do Trataka on this Yantra if it's possible for you. And or you can visualize it inside like Shambhavi Mudra and you can at the same time not use Mantra Yantra, just Shambhala and repeating the name of the king of the world and repeating the name of Shambhala and repeating and or using the higher methods if you are initiated in Kala Chakra using mantras and other methods which are there. According to your level, if you are a beginner, Shambhala knows that you are a beginner and it's not expecting any stunt from you. So don't bother. Here it's not about, these meditations are not about uh, being exceedingly good in your practice. These meditations are always about having aspiration and goodwill. That's what you can show to Shambhala. Like, you know, I'm just a kindergarten kid and I wish one day I'll be like you. I wish one day I'll be part of that. So that's how we do these things. Please prepare those of you who still have 30 minutes. Please prepare for this 30-minute meditation with music in which simply think about Shambhala and those of you who have been to previous meditations and heard Dharmananda or other teachers reading inspiring pages, words about Shambhala, at least you have a memory of some of the things which have been said about the King of the World and about Shambhala. This being said, let us now meditate.